0: This is the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, and we have now entered a mini green season, Sundays in ordinary time, uh, until we come to Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent. And like the long green season in the church year, which is virtually half of the Christian year on the liturgical calendar, these readings are in some way about the cost, the ways, and the means uh, of Christian discipleship, but they are tinctured with an understanding of this discipleship in terms of the uh, obligation that we have to commend to others our greatest place of safety and assurance in Jesus Christ, and also to be able to say that we wish to make manifest God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And three readings today from Jeremiah, from Paul in 1 Corinthians and from the Gospel, from Luke, all have something to do with how we understand what that might mean. So let me talk about Jeremiah first. This comes from chapter 1, the beginning of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a major prophet, and his book is the biggest book in the whole of the Old Testament, that is to say the longest. And the Greek version is even longer than the Hebrew version. So it's a big book. Today, and I should add that if there's anybody who's prepared to paint the blue picture about the future of the human race, it's Jeremiah. So so we need to at least face that reality. But this is one of the readings that has something to do with how Christians appropriated the Old Testament and understood it to be a location for demonstrating God's purposes that have now been uniquely revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah is a young man and he says in his prayer to God that he is fearful that he does not know uh, what to say and what to do. He understands that he has a prophetic vocation. He believes himself called to this vocation and he doesn't know what he's going to do and how to do it. And God comes to him in his prayer and said, Don't worry about what you're going to say. I will tell you what to say. I will be present with you when you are engaged in your prophetic ministry. Now, some of you may ask yourself, What would be the situation on the ground with Jeremiah? Would he actually have heard a voice? Father Hunt, my Old Testament professor at a Shota house used to say, do you think that, Jer- that God was going, okay, Jeremiah, here's what you do. <laughs> this is what you say. All right, listen. John McQuarrie, the Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford many years ago, wrote a book called Paths in Spirituality and had an entire chapter that was entitled Prayer as Thinking. Why am I saying this? Because God comes to us in our thoughts. So it is entirely reasonable to think about Jeremiah ruminating about his prophetic vocation. And when we all say to one another when we're talking, and it came to me, da. So understand the presence of the Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you is the process of clear thinking about your future, about what it is you ought to be doing, about how to think about a particular thing. I'm a great believer in the research that they've done over the last many years on the brain. We have what appears to be a liquid nervous system. And what that means is that thinking and feeling are simultaneous internally. We don't feel and then think, or think and then feel. We do it both together. So it is very important to think about how we feel and vice versa. we start doing that either-or thinking about thinking and feeling, I think we've gotten into some of the hottest water uh, that human beings can get into. So Jeremiah is told or ruminates that God is going to be present with him in his prophetic ministry. Why do we read this? We read this because some of the words that are in here are predictive of Jesus' earthly ministry, but they also have value and utility for each of us as we think about our vocation that may not, in a particular case, have anything to do with our religious commitments, but how we think clearly about what it is that we should be doing as a human being and how do we embrace what we believe is our particular vocational call. So it's always important to think, you know, what is it that God wants me to do and have the faith and the confidence that in your thoughts and your feelings you will have some idea about what it is that you should do that comes from God's spirit within you. Paul is speaking in 1 Corinthians today about perhaps the most important force in the cosmos for transformation, new life, renewal, the love of God, and the demand that is on each human being to become more proficient at loving. This is a famous passage. The dean of my seminary, who was a New Testament scholar, uh, taught the Paul class at Neshota House. He would come into the class with no notes. All he would carry was the Nestle-Adeland Greek New Testament, Novum Testamentum. And he would open it up to 1 Corinthians in this case, and he would make a simultaneous translation from Greek into English When he read the passage, he referred to this uh, as the love passage, right? Not because he was throwing cold water on what it said, but because this is a highly sentimental reading in the New Testament. And in fact, it is probably in the top three of the most read lessons at wedding liturgies. You know? It reminds me when I was in Rome on a scholarship and we had this meeting with Cardinal Bea. And he said, It is a wonderful thing here because of this wonderful reunion that we hope. And one of the Jesuits interrupted him and said, "Uh, Your Eminence, don't you think this language is a little flowery? And he said, I know it is, but it sounds so beautiful. So that's what we think about the love passage. But it is extremely important and central to our self-understanding. You know, it's not just about our sentiments. It's about the centrality of love. We believe in our theology that at our baptism, we receive three infused virtues, faith, hope, and love. And these virtues uh, Two of them are really about our internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states faith and hope. They're things that the, it, the strength of the Spirit of God is what gives us the ability to have faith and to hope and also to love. But love is the quality or the virtue of all those three that extends and moves outside ourselves into relationship. And so Paul is speaking about a particular kind of Love, you've heard this word used, I'm sure. I thought I'd look up uh, this week when I prepared my sermon. The Greeks had four words for love, not just one. And the love that Paul is speaking about today is agape. And the definition of agape is means love, such as in the term saapago in modern Greek, which means I love you. In ancient Greek, it often refers to a general affection or deeper sense of true love rather than the attraction suggested by eros. eros. Agape is used in the biblical passage known as the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and is described here and throughout the New Testament as sacrificial love. Agape is also used in ancient texts to denote feelings for one's children and the feelings for a spouse, and it was also used to refer to a love feast. It can also be described as the feeling of being content or holding one in high regard. Agape was appropriated by Christians for use to express the unconditional love of God. Let me just read you something short about Eros is passionate love with sensual desire and longing. The modern Greek word erotos means intimate love. However, eros does not have to be sexual in nature. Eros can be interpreted as a love for someone whom you love more than the philia love of friendship. It can also apply to dating relationships as well as marriage. Plato refined his own definition Although Eros is initially felt for a person, with contemplation it becomes an appreciation of the beauty within that person, or even becomes appreciation of beauty itself. There are two other words philia, which means the love we have for friendship or affectionate love, and also storge, which is not used a lot in the New Testament, and that's family love love for our family members. Uh, and so on so those are the different kinds But here's the thing that's in this reading from Paul that's also important Paul is speaking about file this word on ice you may amaze your friends agapastic love <laughs> has a sort of vaguely you know, sound to it but it is important the thing that we're talking about here is we need to also think about self-love Because it is important for all human beings to be rounded and mature to have the right kind of self-regard. So if you do, you begin to understand uh, your own personal integrity and other people's integrity. There are a lot of people who believe that love is one of these, I don't know where you begin and end and I begin and end. You know, it's like the New Yorker cartoon about 25 years ago where an elderly couple are sitting at the table in a restaurant and one leans over to the other and says, you know, I can't remember, is it you or me that doesn't like asparagus? (laughs) That's not the kind of love we're talking about. You know, you're completing each other's sentences. You know, a lot of people get that all confused. Paul means that we need to understand the power of the love at work in each of us, God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. And then we need to know that that, uh, uh, that we're loved unconditionally by God. And the benefit and the sense of serenity that that can bring then permits us to love other people in that unconditional way as well. And that's what Paul is speaking about in First Corinthians 13 and why it's such a valued passage in the New Testament to learn how to love better. Each of us need to do that on a daily basis in our relational lives. My friend Murray Hammond, a priest who was a mentor for me, uh, used to say, uh, if you apply yourself, David, God will give you the power to love people. And he's right. He also would repeat over and over again the old saw. You know, we're called to love everyone. We don't have to like everyone. And sometimes people get confused about that too. And this is a long passage about all of those complex questions. And how God is present in the midst of them. The love of God is present in all human relationship. And this is something that we celebrate and give thanks for uh, all the time, or should. In Luke's gospel, we have now the continuation of last week's gospel, where Jesus read from Isaiah 61, the great chapter on God's inclusive work in the world the great chapter on what God is accomplishing in the earthly ministry of Jesus and our proximate call to follow him in the midst of all of that and he experiences today something that I'm sure a number of you here in the church including myself have experienced in our life whenever you decide to take a vocational turn or a direction in your life that does not meet with the approval of some of those near and dear to you, watch out. The big discount comes into play. And it begins softly in today's gospel when someone in the synagogue says, in so many words, where does he get this stuff? Isn't he Joseph the carpenter's son? You know? Years and years ago, when I was a very young priest, I was at a family, one of my family gatherings, and uh, I had become an Episcopalian and then an Episcopal priest, and my family were not Episcopalians. And I was in this uh, thing where I had to get up and speak, which I did, and my... One of my grandparents' friends came up to me after this and said, That was very good. Do you do much public speaking in your work? I did not receive that well. Maybe I should have uh, practiced what I preach about all the time, learning how to be non-anxious in the teeth of the anxiousness and reactivity of others, right? But it was certainly an example of, here comes the big discount. And that's what the Savior of the world got in his hometown synagogue. So he proceeds to tell them two stories that come from their sacred literature. That when the heavens were shut up and there was a famine all through the land, Elijah, the prophet, did not come to anyone in Israel. He went to the widow in Zarephath, in Sidon. And during the time that there was a great epidemic of leprosy, Elisha, the prophet, did not go to Israel. Elisha, the prophet, uh, healed Naaman, the Syrian. The people were so angry, they rose up to drive him out of, the, out of the synagogue. Because what was he suggesting? He was suggesting that God is operating and present, but not just to those on the inside. Not just to those who believe that they're vested with special privileges and, uh, and uh, perks. Perks with regard to who they are, the people of the covenant. He was saying to them that in his ministry, I am announcing what Isaiah the prophet said in, our, in the Christian Old Testament. And that is that God's liberating, saving embrace is for everybody. Not just those who believe themselves smugly to be in And so it is by virtue of that, that they were upset and felt now that he was, I don't know, a heretic. I always wonder in the passage, though, when they drove him to the cliff and they were going to throw him off, how did he disappear through the crowd? Did he disappear, become invisible? Anyway, he made it out of there, which is pretty good. That also shows us that when God's present with you, sometimes you can get out of some pretty tight scrapes. Right? So it's a way to think about God's work in the hearts of all faithful people. This week, give thanks for the fact that uh, through right thinking, through clarity of thought, through understanding the relationship between thinking and feeling, you will find the ability to do what you need to do and you can say what you need to say That God gives you that, that God also vests you with the ability to reflect to the world this unconditional love that is characterized by the Greek word agape, and also to learn to like and love yourself better than you have, you know, it's not easy to do, and God gives you the power to do that uh, in the midst of great complexity, so give thanks for those things. Amen.